0: Let me welcome you to the concluding message. This is message number six in this series where we have been thinking together about um, this idea of thriving. We're learning in these weeks together to do more than to survive, but we want to thrive as a follower of Jesus. In just a minute, I'm going to review for you the things, the points, the necessities that we've learned over the last few weeks about what is required in order to thrive as a disciple. But let me begin by giving you uh, today's Thrive Principle. Just jot this down and then we'll go from here. To thrive as a disciple of Christ, I must participate in the Great Commission. To thrive as a disciple of Christ, I must participate in the Great Commission. The Barna Research Group, which many of you will be familiar with, Uh, recently, just a few years ago, conducted a survey in which they asked church-going Americans. Now hear me, this was not a survey of man on the street. It wasn't a random telephone survey. These questions were being asked to people who regularly attend church. The uh, questions included this question. Have you heard of the Great Commission? Have you ever heard of the Great Commission? And the results were absolutely astonishing. Look look at the graph that's coming up on the screen. Here's what the results showed. When asked, uh, have you heard of the Great Commission, 51% of regular church attenders said, I've never heard that phrase. I I don't know what that is. Another 25% said, I've heard it, but I don't know what it means. And then there was another 6% that said, you know, I'm just not sure if I've ever heard of the Great Commission or not. Now, when you add all of that together, here's the result. 82% of church-going Americans, according to that survey, have no idea what the Great Commission is. And if they don't know what the Great Commission is, then they are surely not participating in the Great Commission. So let me ask you I hope the survey results would be different if Barna ever shows up at Brookstone, but may I ask you, do you know what the Great Commission is? And if you do, are you participating in it? Well, today we're gonna talk about that. But let me begin by reminding you of the six Thrive Principles that we've laid down over these last uh, Sundays as we've been thinking about thriving together. I'm going to repeat these because it is our last Sunday in this series and I want you to have them all. And I know some of you are thinking, no, you're not. You've done it every single week. You've repeated them. And that's true because repetition is good for learning. And I want you to learn all of these. All right. So let me do it quickly. Here's what we've learned. If we are going to thrive as disciples of Jesus, it begins with being devoted to Jesus. Remember Matthew 16, align your thinking with Christ's I need to be devoted to him in my my understanding, my view of life. I need to think like Jesus. Number two, if we're going to be devoted or uh, thriving as disciples of Christ, we must die to ourselves. I'm not a thriving disciple if I am the boss of my life and Jesus has been marginalized. I must step away from the throne, let Christ be on the throne of my life, and I die to myself. Number three. If we're going to thrive as a disciple of Christ, we must grow as a witness for Christ. We must be willing to share the gospel. Number four, if we are going to thrive as a disciple of Jesus, we must embrace a lifestyle of servanthood. Those who are thriving as disciples are not the ones who want to be served, but they are the ones who are serving. They have a heart to serve others. Jesus said in Matthew 20, whoever will be great among you, let him become your servant. And then number five, we have learned that to thrive as a disciple of Jesus, we must grow in love for God and for others. That was last week, Matthew 22. It's the great commandment. The great commandment, Jesus said, is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, and that is to love others as yourself. That's the great commandment. Today, we're going to talk about the Great Commission. And I want to help you with it. If you have been uh, to the Holy Land, you will know that right along the shore of the Sea of Galilee is a mountain which is unlike all of the other mountains that surround that lake. Um, Most of the mountains surrounding the Sea of Galilee are what we would call rolling hills. They're really not mountains in the sense that we would think of mountains. But there's one mountain that you see there on the left side of the screen which is Mount Arbel. Mount Arbel is known for these steep, uh, rocky cliffs. It is a dramatic uh, and imposing mountain, if for no other reason because of its height and the sheer drop-off uh, of the cliffs that lead up to the top. But Mount Arbel is also significant because of what many Bible scholars believed took place on the top of that mountain. If you go to the top of the mountain, this is what you will find. It's a little surprising, isn't it, when you see those those steep crags on the side of it. On the top, you have these beautiful meadows. and It is a flat plateau where many people could gather together. And there are many who believe that it was on top of Mount Arbel in that meadow that you're looking at where Jesus, after his resurrection, where he met with more than 500 believers, including his disciples, and gave to them his great commission. The Apostle Paul speaks of this moment When Jesus, after his resurrection, appeared to so many believers at one time. He appeared to more than 500 at once, according to Paul. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15 and verse number 6. It says, after that, he was seen of more than 500 brethren at once. Paul, when he wrote, says, of whom the greater part remains to the present time, but some have died or some have fallen asleep. And it makes sense that it would have been in this moment when Jesus uh, gave the great commission to the church because this great crowd would explain the doubting disciples that our text is going to talk about. Let's read about it. Look with me in Matthew chapter number 28, beginning in verse number 16. The Bible says, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some, I might say some others, doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. And then Matthew ends this chapter, this teaching, and this gospel account with his word, amen. Let it be so. And so I want you to think with me for just a minute as we start thinking about this thing of the Great Commission. I want you to go back up to verse number 16, and I want you to notice what's going on. The Bible says the 11 disciples went away into Galilee. So here's the question. Why is the number 11? Because I thought there were 12 disciples, right? But we know that this event is recorded after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that means that it is recorded or it it occurred after Judas had betrayed Jesus and then in great grief had gone out And hanged himself. So Judas is dead by the time you get to Matthew 28. The group of 12 has diminished to 11. Verse number 16 says that these 11 disciples went away from Jerusalem and they went to Galilee. They went away. Now here's my question for you. I want you to consider this question. Why would Jesus, the risen Jesus, send his disciples to whom he had already appeared in Jerusalem multiple times, several times on the very day that he rose from the dead on Sunday, he had already made himself known to them. Why would he then send them all the way to the Sea of Galilee, which would be a three or four day walking journey, only to appear to them in Galilee again And Then having appeared to them in Galilee, bring them back to Jerusalem, which he does. They go back to Jerusalem where they are on the 40th day after his resurrection when he ultimately ascends back to heaven. Here's the question. If you've revealed yourself as the risen Lord to your disciples in Jerusalem, why send them to Galilee, appear to them there, and then bring them back to Jerusalem and appear to them again? Why the trip to the Galilee? Well, I think the answer is honestly pretty simple, and it's this. I believe it is because, remember that the Galilee region was the headquarters of the ministry of Jesus. Not far from the mountain there that we were looking at, Mount Arbel, literally a, a 30 or 40 minute, maybe a 60 minute walk, you would come to the town of Capernaum on the shore of Galilee. And Capernaum is called the hometown Jesus. This is where his ministry was based. This This is where he preached most of his messages. The Bible says he went to the synagogues in Galilee preaching the message of the kingdom of God. It was in the Galilee where he raised the dead, where he healed the sick where he he, uh, healed the lame, where he made the blind eyes to see and the deaf ears to hear. It was in the Galilee where he caused a great catch of fish to happen, where he walked on the Sea of Galilee itself. It was in the Galilee where he fed the multitudes, 5,000 men plus women and children with one little boy's lunch. Here's my point. In the towns and the villages around the Lake of Galilee, Jesus had many people who believed in him and loved him. And I believe he went back to that Galilee region so that he might reveal himself as the crucified and risen Lord to those followers personally. And they would not be relying only on the testimony of the disciples, but they would have seen Jesus for himself. And so Jesus says to his disciples, go into Galilee to the mountain I've designated, I'll meet you there. And so they go to Galilee, they gather a crowd of 500, at least 500 people. They go to the mountain that Jesus specifies, Mount Arbel, perhaps. I couldn't prove that, but I I tend to believe that it was. They gather on that mountaintop, and Jesus then appears, and he begins to speak to them. Now, notice what the Bible says in verse number 17. It says that when this crowd gathers, and Jesus appears to them, that when they saw him, They worshiped him, but some doubted. It's one of the reasons I believe that there were far more people there than the 11 disciples because I have to tell you, I find it hard to believe that the disciples would have been doubting the resurrection by this point. They've already seen him multiple times. They've already uh, touched him. Quite likely, I don't know this for certain, but John 21 quite likely had occurred before this where seven of the disciples have had breakfast with Jesus. Come on. They're not doubting his resurrection by this point. So who are the doubters? I think the doubters are those among the, the, uh, that are gathered with the disciples. It's those uh, 500 plus among those. There are some who are doubting. Now here's the fact that any time there is a gathering of people like we have today on either of our campuses, there will be in that gathering where Christ is present and where the risen Christ is being proclaimed, there will always be two different kinds of people that will be there. There will be true worshipers, verse number 17, and there will also be doubters, verse number 17. And so let me ask you, Which are you? As you've assembled here today, are you truly a worshiper of the risen Christ or are you a pessimistic doubter or a skeptical doubter of the fact, the rule, the authority, the reality of the risen Christ? Well, I sang with you in Weaverville this morning and we engaged in worship through singing and I know that in this crowd, there are a number of authentic worshipers because I had the privilege of worshiping with you. But some of you may say, well, I'm not really a doubter, but I'm just not really into that worship thing. I just don't really get into that. I I don't really care much about worship, but I don't really doubt. I'm sorry, I'm just not gonna give you that grace space, okay? I I think you're just gonna have to determine you're on the Lord's side or you're not. You're not. You've either said Christ is risen and he's my Lord, or you've said I'm just not interested and I doubt that he has any place in my life at all. And so if you've come today as a skeptic or a pessimistic doubter, welcome. I'm thrilled that you're here, but my prayer is that you'll leave here today a worshiper, not a doubter. Jesus gathered with the worshipers and with the doubters among them. And it was on that Mountaintop, I believe, in that moment that he gave to them his Great Commission. So let's talk about the Great Commission. I want you to write it down in your notes somewhere. Here it is. This is what the Great Commission is by definition. If Barna Research ever shows up at Brookstone and says, have you heard of the Great Commission? You better say yes. Here it is. I'm going to tell you what it is. The Great Commission is very simply, as the Bible says in verse number 19, go and make disciples. That's the commission. Jesus has said that we are to go and to make disciples. Now there's a fair amount of debate as to whether or not the original language should be translated into English in this passage As it is in the King James, which says in verse number 19, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, or go ye therefore and make disciples. That's what it means. The debate is, should it say, go and make disciples? Or is it a more correct translation to say, as you are going, make disciples? Do you see the difference in the two? There's a little bit of a different emphasis Uh, In the case, go and make disciples, we clearly are commanded, the imperative is that we are on a mission. We are to go and make disciples. If it is as you are going, in other words, as you go about your life, as you do your thing, as you are engaged in your occupation, as you go to the university or the college or the high school campus, as you go about your life, make disciples Along the way. I have to tell you, I'm not too interested in bogging down in the bait, in the debate. In either case, here's the fact: the imperative is that the church is to make disciples. Amen? That's what we have been called to. We've been called to make disciples. We are the goers. We are the ones who are to go into this world and make disciples. If disciples are to be made, if people are to follow Christ. How will that happen? Only as the church engages in the Great Commission, as we all participate in the Great Commission. And we go and we make disciples. I mentioned we have a team in Honduras right now. They've gone there to make disciples. Uh, you may know, many of you will know, Kristen Bremner. Kristen grew up in our church, and now she's an adult, a young adult, and she's leaving us in a couple of months, and uh, we're going to miss her. She's part of that East Campus team. Y'all will miss her especially. But she's going to London, where she will spend the next two years on mission, on a campus in the UK, uh, making disciples for Jesus. That's part of what this means, that we are to go. We might go on a mission trip. We might go on an evangelism visit. We might go on a a, a visitation call and try to lead someone to trust in Christ and to become a disciple. We're the goers. We're also the investors. I mentioned this earlier. We can't always be the ones who go, but we can make sure other people are able to go. So when we invest in ministry, Other people go and we go with them in a sense in that we participate with them by giving so that they might be able to go. And then as I mentioned, we understand that this going is not just to go out on a a special trip or to send someone through our gifts, but it's also as we go about our daily lives, we are to go and make disciples. This is a great commission. So how do we do it? I want you to jot down a couple of things that you and I all need to participate in if we are going to participate in the Great Commission and be a part of um, getting the gospel to the nations and making disciples of all nations. There are several things that we need to do. Number one, uh, going and making disciples begins with sharing the hope of Christ with others. Now, we talked about this in some detail last, well, a couple of weeks ago. Um, so I won't say much about it right here, but simply notice the Bible says that we are to go and teach, verse 19, go therefore and teach all nations. Now what's interesting about this word teach is it is a word which means to help a person to come to understand what is true about Christ. It's, it's not just a gospel presentation it is a discipleship conversation. It's not where I run up to somebody and say, Jesus loves you, trust in him, and then I run away. Or I just give somebody a gospel track, read that, it'll take you to heaven, and then I leave them alone. But what it means is that to participate in the Great Commission, that we are coming alongside people, telling them who Jesus is, and then helping them grow in their understanding of who Jesus is, trusting in Christ as their Savior, and then maturing in their faith. Now, who are you going to do that with? Who are you going to help to understand who Jesus is and help them to grow and mature in that understanding? Let's begin at the closest relation. Um, Gentlemen, husbands, listen to me. If you're married to a wife, I want to say to you, gentlemen, you are the primary discipler of your bride, of your wife. So gentlemen, you should be leading your home spiritually. Now I know we're all wired a little differently and that looks different in different homes, but guys, you should be the one saying, we as a couple are gonna grow in our walk with the Lord. So you disciple, you you mature in your walk and you help your wife to mature in her walk. Wife, you are the primary disciple of your husband as well. That goes both ways. And so we disciple, we encourage one another as we grow in the faith. Mom and dad, if you have kids, let me, let me tell you, you are the primary disciplers of your children. If y'all are listening to both campuses, shout amen. amen. Listen, thank God for youth culture. Thank God for Sullivan Brady and his team. Thank God for Logan Anderson and his team. We have incredible student ministers and, a, and an incredible group of people in our church who serve in student ministry. But hear me, that team, they are not the primary disciplers of your children. You are the primary discipler, Pastor Jeff Adkins, Pastor Josh over at East, they are not the primary disciples. So to participate in the Great Commission means that I am evangelizing my family and I'm maturing, helping my family mature in their faith as well. Do you understand? That's being part of the Great Commission. I don't get to check out on that. It means that I'm doing that with my friends. It means that if I'm in a life group, and that's one of the greatest places to participate in the Great Commission, to help your life group grow in their faith. It means that we are teaching others about the hope of Christ and helping them to mature and to grow in their understanding. That's the first part. Second part, if we're gonna participate in the Great Commission, is that we lead new believers to go public with their faith. It's part of participating in the Great Commission. Look at verse number 19. Jesus says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Great Commission includes the imperative of believers' baptism. Let me ask you a question. Is baptism... To be minimized in the life of a believer, marginalized, not that important, or is it to be highlighted as something that every believer ought to do? Well, Jesus didn't leave it out of the Great Commission. He said that we are to teach people of Him, mature them in their faith, and and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now I'm going to say something to you right now that's going, to, that's going to maybe make you feel a little bit uncomfortable, but I love you enough to tell you the truth. And here's the thing. Some of you have been saved for years, maybe months, and you have hesitated, for whatever reason, you have hesitated to follow through in believers' baptism. Maybe somebody said to you, it's not that big a deal. Don't worry about it. I don't know. Maybe you said, I don't want to get in front of all those people. Maybe you said, I don't want to get my hair wet. I don't know. But some of you have been saved for years or months, and you have not yet been baptized. Now, maybe you're involved in ministry in other ways, or you're serving, you're in Bible studies, you're in life group, whatever, but you've never been baptized since trusting in Jesus. Can I tell you? You have sidestepped the first obligation as a disciple of Jesus, and that's going public with baptism. You say, Pastor... Why is it so important? What's the big deal? Listen, Romans chapter 6 teaches us this, that when we are baptized, we are identifying with the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are saying Christ died, was buried, and rose again. And I, by faith in Christ, have died to myself died to my sin, died to my old life. And now with Christ, I have been buried. And with Christ, I have risen from the dead to live a brand new life. And I want to be baptized so that I am identifying, immersing myself in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It doesn't add to your salvation. It doesn't make you any more saved. But it is the first step that we are to take in this great commission of disciple-making. Uh, uh, disciple Secondly, baptism confesses. It is a public confession that all of my hope of salvation is vested in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. I have no hope of going to heaven except for this one thing. Christ has died. Christ has risen. That's where my hope lies. And by identifying with that in baptism, I'm saying I trust in what Jesus did. And thirdly, Baptism is a public statement of my allegiance to the crucified and the risen Savior. Baptism says I'm not a Christianized version of my former self. Baptism says, I have aligned myself fully with the person of Jesus Christ. He has uh, been crucified and risen, and now I align myself with him. So, baptism is not unimportant, it's vitally important, and Jesus included it in the Great Commission. If we're going to make disciples, then we need to lead other people to make their faith public and identify with Christ in baptism. That means, mom and dad, you should be baptized because you want your kids to be baptized. And they need to know that you've been obedient in that regard as well. And we need to encourage that in all that we know who come to Christ. Thirdly, Jesus says that in order to participate in the Great Commission, we are sharing who he is, helping people mature in their faith. We are leading them to go public with their faith. And then number three, we are helping believers obey Christ. We're helping one another obey Christ. Look at verse number 20. He says, I want you, verse 19, go and teach and baptize. And then, verse number 20, thirdly, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Jesus teaches that we are to, or Jesus commands that we are to teach others to observe, the word means to pay attention to, to walk in, uh, to keep his commandments. That To be a disciple means that I am walking in obedience to what Christ says. And if I am a disciple maker, then I must be modeling a life walking in obedience to what Christ says and challenging, encouraging, leading, teaching others to walk in obedience to what Christ says as well. Do you understand that that disciple making is a journey, it's a partnership, it's, a, it's a, a journey where we walk along together and we teach one another as we go. Now, when the Bible says, or I'm sorry, not the Bible, but when the Barna survey says that most Christians don't even know what the Great Commission is, and if, they, if they've heard of it, they don't know exactly what it means, that if we live with such ignorance, how can we ever participate in it? He says that we have been called to this great Commission. The second thing that Jesus teaches us in Matthew 28 is that we ought to be reminded of his authority. Write it down this way. Verse number 18 talks about our authority in Christ. Our authority in Christ. Christ has all authority. Both campuses online, if you believe it, shout amen. amen. All authority. How much authority does he have? Some, a little bit. No, he has all. He has all authority. And very often, we we don't make disciples because we hesitate. We draw back. We're like those doubters on Mount Arbel. We hesitate because we're afraid. We're uncertain. And Christ says, wait a minute. You are to go make disciples for this reason. Do you see it in verse number 18? I have all power. Therefore, you go. There are two parts to this that you need to understand. In the first place, Christ has all authority over us. Can I just say it plainly? This passage isn't Jesus saying, hey, don't sweat it. I've got all authority over the world, all authority out there, so you go and be comfortable. He's saying, hey, look at me. I have authority over you. (laughs) And I'm telling you, you are to go and make disciples. Now, if he has no authority over your life, ignore the command. But if he has all authority, then the command is for me, and the command is for you. When Jesus says that I have all authority, he has the authority to give us this commission. A commission is a command. It is a duty that we have been called to. And because he is our authority, then we obey his commands. There's a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where where Paul is talking about this call that God has put on our lives to be ambassadors for Christ and that we are to speak for Christ and that we call people to be reconciled to Christ. And, And in that context of our being called to this great commission, Paul says in chapter 5 and verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to stand before the one who has authority over us one day. And he's going to want to know how we lived out this great commission. And I want you to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 11. They'll put it on the screen for us on both campuses. Here's what it says. Paul says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. You read that verse alone, you might think, well, that's right, man. People ought to be terrified of judgment. Those people... They ought to know the terror of the Lord. I know the terror of the Lord, so they need to get saved. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, we've been given a command, and we will stand before him one day, and he has all authority over us. And knowing the terror of that moment, I'm going to be faithful about persuading men. I'm going to live out this great commission because one day Jesus is going to look me in the eye, and he's going to talk to me about how I did. And so he says that I have all authority over you and I have given you this command. Secondly, of course, it does mean that Christ has all authority in heaven and in earth. And as we go about making disciples, we go about in his authority. We have no reason to fear. We have no reason to hesitate. Christ has authority. Christ has authority. The word power in verse number 18 is the Greek word exousia. It means governance, Or jurisdiction, it means I have the the power or the right to rule, to enforce his will. So I can go about making disciples, I can go through my life making disciples, I can go on a mission making disciples because as I go, I know that my Father has all authority over all things. Someone has said I would never go on a mission trip, it's too dangerous, but Christ has all authority over life and death, amen? Well, I would never go into that situation. What would happen? Well, Christ has all authority. Well, I couldn't speak to that person because they would intimidate me and yet I go in the authority of the one who has all authority. And so he does have all authority in heaven and earth and we should, we should go. He calls men and women and boys and girls to himself and he calls us to be his ambassadors in that. Well, finally... He says to this group of 500 plus, I want you to go and make disciples. I want you to go in my authority. Know that I have authority over you to command it. And I have authority over every place where you will go. And then thirdly, he says that I am with you always. Verse number 20, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. This is our assurance along the way. Jesus says, as you go, I want you to know you're not going alone. Uh, as you go make disciples, I'm with you, going to make those disciples and exercising my authority. Not long after this, he will be back in Jerusalem with his disciples on the Mount of Olives and he will ascend to the Father. He will go away, but one day he will come again. And during that time in between, from his ascension to his return, we are to be about making disciples. So let me ask you are you a disciple maker? Begin with your spouse if you're married. Begin with your kids if you have them. Begin with your close friends, your life group. But be about making disciples. And as you grow in love and you grow in servicehood, servanthood, and as you grow as a person who wants to be a witness for Christ, and as you die to yourself and you grow in your devotion to Jesus, there is a health and a fruitfulness and a vitality and a flourishing a thriving that comes to your spiritual life as a disciple of Jesus. May God help us to live in such a way. Would you pray a prayer sometime this week, this month as we end 2022, and we move into 2023 and a brand new year? Would you pray a prayer which says, Dear God, give me grace in the coming year to make disciples. God, I wanna come to December of 2023 and be able to say, you know, there's Bill and Ben and Mary and Sue and they're walking with Jesus today and they're growing as a disciple and to some degree, because I was thriving as a disciple, I had a part in that. Pray that prayer and I believe God will make it possible.